Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting Podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is episode 27 and we have Dr. Sally Gainsbury, PhD, joining the show. Dr. Gainsbury is a qualified clinical psychologist with over 12 years experience conducting gambling research. Her research is focused on understanding gambling to inform the development of responsible gambling strategies and harm minimization policies. Her research excellence and contribution to the wider community has been recognized with numerous awards in her field. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. The Betfair exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game and join today. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy my chat with Dr. Sally Gainsbury. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sally Gainsbury, PhD from the University of Sydney. Sally, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure, Jake. So Sally, you're a clinical psychologist. Uh, I'm certainly not even close to that level of education, so I would certainly appreciate if you could just give myself and, and I guess some of the listeners a little bit of understanding about what it means when I say clinical psychologist. Well, a clinical psychologist is at an additional expertise on top of psychology training. So I've actually done a Bachelor of Psychology, a PhD in Psychology and a Doctorate of Clinical Psychology. So it does it does add up to a few years at university. But what it means is that I have the experience and accreditation to treat people not who are just suffering from you know, various everyday uh, psychological issues for people who really do have more serious gam- uh, gambling and other types of mental disorders. However, I will I will mention that although I am trained as a clinical psychologist, I'm actually in a, a research-only position at the moment, so I'm not currently practicing. So what made you get in or focus on gambling? Was it you started out with psychology and you found your way towards gambling or were you involved before that and had an interest or even a brief interest or involvement in gambling? Well, I think everyone in Australia has some level of knowledge of gambling. It's it's pretty prevalent and popular. So around the time I was starting my Bachelor of Psychology, I was actually working in in a bar, making making money as you do. And I was in charge in some on some nights of the pokey rooms and of the TAB. So I was there working away for my $15 an hour and seeing people put tens and hundreds of dollars on the dogs on a Tuesday night or in a poker machine and walking away without anything. And thinking to myself that that seems a bit odd. Uh, my background is actually in in more in horse racing because my family have always been interested in in horse racing, and we even have a Melbourne Cup within the family, which uh, your Australian listeners and probably your US listeners will know is more than just a little interest in, in racing from a from a family background. So I've always been aware of gambling, but when I started to study psychology. I was really drawn to gambling as such an interesting example of irrational behavior that if you look at at problem gambling and you think about the sort of atypical example, someone that can't afford to pay their bills, but they keep going back again and again to spend money in the hopes of winning something that in the cold light of day, they're very unlikely to achieve. So that irrationality, I really was interested to try and understand. I want to touch on some of the gambling research you've conducted first and maybe some of those thoughts and ideas and you know some of the, the findings you've had. Your research has focused on many things including sort of gam- responsible gambling strategies and harm minimization. Uh, some of the recent stuff I read was on the blockchain and, and Bitcoin. 
you've spent over 10 years doing it. What are some of the examples of, I guess, the most interesting projects that you've been able to work on? Gosh, I have done done a fair few different varieties. I've worked on everything from looking at, at poker machines. I've certainly had a focus consistently on trying to prevent gambling problems. So to take a step back, that includes also understanding gambling problems and understanding just gambling in general to see where is that line between recreational gambling and that tipping point over into problematic play and how can we get people before they reach that tipping point to understand what level of risk, what type of intervention we can come up with because we know that by the time someone comes in for treatment, they usually have really extreme gambling problems and we my angle is to try and really prevent that to keep people gambling at a, a healthier entertainment level or to stop gambling if that's more appropriate for them but to try and stop those problems from developing so I've looked at everything from the most effective content for warning messages and how to display those moving away from just static stickers on the side of a machine or very basic and generalized strategies. And increasingly, my research has been informed by technology. As technology has developed, we've developed the ability to enhance prevention and intervention. So rather than just have a generic message that is shown to all gamblers, we're looking at how to target messages and customize interventions so that individual gambling and gamblers are responded to in a more unique manner because we know that in order to influence behavior, just telling people information doesn't work. In fact, my, my PhD and honors theses were on the, on the topic of looking at the existing responsible gambling strategies that are mandated by law and still are mandated by law that you have to have a sticker on the side of a machine or a, a pamphlet that says the chances of winning a, a jackpot. But the reality is that message just is ignored, it's not attended to, and it's not really believed either. Because if you look at behavior, and you can look at things like mobile apps these days that have really shifted how we, how our behavior is carried out, a simple message or one static warning isn't going to be very likely to shift quite ingrained behavioral habits. So what I've increasingly focused on is how to how to use technology and how to understand human behavior and all the complex biases and emotions that accompany that behavior and how to come up with relatively low level interventions that aren't hugely disturbing for, for most gamblers but can start to nudge and shift people into more appropriate behavior, whatever that means for them. Okay, because the idea of problem gambling is an interesting one. I, I've played poker and I've lost a hand and I feel angry and upset and I feel like, you know, the, the cards are against me, the dealer's against me, my brother or whoever I'm playing with is against me or I, you know, watch a sports game and my team loses on the last play or the last goal or whatever it might be and you get that feeling of, you know, chasing losses. Is that problem gambling or is that part and parcel of gambling and problem gambling goes beyond that? Yeah, it's a really good question because we don't have a great understanding and definition of problem gambling except for the very extreme end. We can say something like if you are hiding your gambling, if you're being secretive, if you're stealing or borrowing money, if you're, if you're neglecting other important activities of your life and uh, if you have financial difficulties, that's all problem gambling. If you, it's the preoccupation with it, which is somewhat of a, a difficult thing to say because if, for example, you're a professional gambler, you could arguably be thinking about gambling a lot, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're a problem gambler. But if you really have difficulty controlling yourself, if you try and stop gambling or try and cut back, but you find yourself unable to, maybe it's beyond your control. So it's more than just one one criteria or one feature. It's really when there are a few different features. and Individuals can often tell themselves if they have a problem, but there's a huge problem with denial or, or those that self-talk that, oh, it's not really a problem or if I just win, then it won't be a problem. Yeah, That gets in people's way. And the other thing about gambling is it's often called the, the hidden addiction because it's unlike alcohol or substances. When you go home that you could see someone's visibly intoxicated, there's no way to know if someone's been gambling and there's often we see when people do have really extreme problems and finally come to seek help, 
that's often at the behest or insistence of someone else who's finally discovered this gambling, by which stage quite irreparable damage has been done to relationships and trust, not to mention finances. So, but what we need to start shifting is away from just focusing on that problematic because, you know, that's really a small proportion of gamblers and it's a really, it's a really important group to think about. But we need to also think about, about what is risky gambling. So that idea of beating yourself up the next day or waking up on a Saturday and thinking, oh, seeing ATM receipts on the floor. I didn't really, I didn't really mean to do that. I didn't really think about it. It wasn't planned. Yeah. Just feeling bad about it and certainly, you know, that emotional toll that it takes. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, there's professional poker players or professional gamblers who spend, you know, thousands of dollars or tens of thousands sometimes and sort of can think about beating themselves up. Well, for some people, just losing $10 at bingo can be really emotionally upsetting for them. And that's why it's such an individual level. There are no sort of standard drinks. We can't say that there's two drinks. That's an appropriate level for, for women or for men. It's such an individual level and it really depends on how the individual responds to the situation, whether that be the losses or the wins, because for some people, winning is what's really problematic because then they think, aha, I'm luckier or I've got a strategy and they go back again and again without being able to replicate that. So what about the person or type of person? How do you box the person who might go to the casino every three months and when they do go, they might want to spend 50 or or $100 and they spend four or 500 and then they don't go back, they don't think about it for three, six, nine months and then you know they'll have a footy trip or they'll have a box party or whatever it might be and then at the time they're faced with it, they'll have a... I guess an isolated problem or whatever you want to categorize it as, but then for the rest of their functioning life, they're fine and they can, you know, keep paying the rent, keep paying the bills, but somewhere deep down or underlying, there's a there's a, a piece of an issue, I guess you'd call it. How do you categorize those or think about those type of people? Because I think we all know them or, you know, there's there's people out there that can absolutely control it and then when they, whether it's drinking or gambling or whatever it might be, then it, it turns into something that's, uh, at a level that's not necessarily fun. That's right. And I think that we can get away from how we categorize or, or diagnose people because I think that problem gambling to some extent lies on a continuum and anyone can move along that. And we do actually know from research, if we look at longitudinal studies, we ask people repeatedly over time the same questions that we use to, to diagnose or to classify people people do shift around. That's really common that people are potentially more or less at risk at any particular point in time because it is really dependent on on what they're doing on the stage of their life, on how much money they have, on their other responsibilities. But I think that's why it's really important to start thinking about strategies and interventions for a broader section of the population because still now we've really just focused on how to stop problem gamblers or how to have a treatment or how to have a helpline, self-exclusion, something for that really that group of people who have extreme problems. But we have really neglected the rest of gamblers who essentially all are potentially at risk because that's the whole point of gambling. It is a risky activity and that the, the experience of loss of control and emotional responses and uh, you know, a slight sense of recklessness is to some point part and parcel of the gambling because if you didn't feel a little bit of exhilaration or a little bit of a, a sense of uncertainty, then it wouldn't be particularly fun. There wouldn't be much point in engaging. So we know that uh, for those people, they're largely neglected. And what we need to do is start thinking the same way as wearing seatbelts. You don't intend, you don't sit in your car and intend to get in a car crash or, or speed, but it's possible for anyone to get distracted or to have something else happen in the environment or to have a moment where they do lose control and get into an accident. So we need to start thinking about how can we come up with seatbelts and encourage all gamblers to start putting into place strategies so that they are less likely to experience not the risk and the thrill, but the loss of control. And that could be something as simple as only taking the cash that you intend to spend or taking a, a card that has a limited access to funds or having a friend come and get you. There's lots of really little things that you can do as an individual or that we can set up at a societal level 
that will be a sort of seatbelt to help people stay within their limits. So what type of access to, to data and information have you got from the industry itself, whether it's you know government organizations or corporate bookmakers who you know have large sports betting uh, clients and things like that, or even others in the industry? Has it been wide open, let's try and attack it and fix it and do some of the things that your research suggests? Because it sounds like the, the typical regulations with stickers or, or warning messages are a little bit outdated, and you mentioned some strategies just then as to ways to put in place that seatbelt. What is the approach from the industry itself? Well, one of the reasons that I do enjoy working in the field of gambling is it is highly applied. So I often have the opportunity to make submissions or speak with regulators and policy makers at a, at a state, at a federal, at an international level. And I do, I do speak also at industry events and with industry uh, partners, whether they be land-based or online operators, because everyone is starting to realise that responsible gambling is important and the current strategies are not working. There are certainly pretty large conflicts of interest that have to be acknowledged and the money that comes along with gambling and that includes problem gambling has to be recognised as something that does influence uh, the approaches that are taken. And it is a balancing act because we don't necessarily want to put in strategies that are going to disrupt the gambling industry to the extent that recreational gamblers are you know, turned away essentially, but we still need to come up with something that's a balance. So I have uh, worked with the, the various stakeholders and I'll continue to have the conversations because essentially there's not much point, I think, in me sitting in a university and doing research and writing academic publications if I don't try and take that knowledge and the learning and the development of knowledge that we have over time because the ideas that, that I'm discussing today are I didn't necessarily have five years ago. So it's about learning and looking at developing and updating various strategies and having those conversations but also pushing for change because that does happen quite slowly and I think that the, the industry have a responsibility to go further than what is just legislatively required of them to try and learn and understand so they can protect their customers. A quick note from our friends at Betfair. Ready for a different way of thinking? Unlike other operators, Betfair wants you to win. On the Betfair Hub, you'll unlock market-leading insights, strategies, models, and more. Master the game within the game. And join today at betfair.com.au with promo code BOBPOD. Please gamble responsibly. So one thing I don't understand, and I hope you can help me with, is the attraction to, to slot machines or poker machines. I've been to Vegas and you walk around and they're everywhere. If you go to a bar or a pub in Australia, you'll see them. And quite often there's a lot of people playing and it seems like you know a video game. And I don't know how true this is, but I heard maybe 10 or 15 years ago that if you played on you know an average slot machine or a poker machine for 24 hours a day for 14 days in a row, you'll recoup you know, 80% of your money or something like that. So you, you know, basically guaranteed to lose. So I just, do you, have you figured out what it is that attracts people to those types of machines and, you know, why are they so popular in general society? Yeah, well, they are popular. So in Australia, poker machines are the fourth most popular type of gambling, but they make up two thirds of all gambling revenue or expenditure rather. So Although they are popular, they're not popular amongst the whole population. So there are different groups of people who play poker machines. But what they are is they're a great example of a habit-forming product. So poker machines actually work on an intermittent or a random reinforcement schedule. And what that means is that each time you press the button, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. So you likely experience small wins over time, and that might actually be a win that's less than what you're actually bet. So you might bet $3 and win $1.50, and the machine will still celebrate that as a win. So the, the experience that you have as a consumer is, is positive. You're seeing flashing lights, and you're feeling that sense of satisfaction and achievement. But what keeps people coming back again and again is the potential for anyone to win. You don't need to have any background in education or be from any particular training or 
any particular group or lot in life, it's a great equaliser. A poker machine could potentially be won, the jackpot can be won by anyone because of that random reinforcement schedule and you never know it might be the next press of the button. And that's what gets people to stay, although they might experience in losses over time, they see that almost as an investment because unfortunately people don't understand that the machines are random. They think they have a particularly gamblers and problem gamblers do have irrational thoughts. They think they're more likely to win. They have a strategy or a skill. We call that illusions of control. They often think that there might be, you know, a series of losses means that a win is about to come. So we actually, when we, when we look at studies that have uh, measures of arousal, things like your heart rate and your um, how much you're sweating, which are sort of physiological arousal measures, we find that problem gamblers actually respond to a loss in a positive way. And that's what we, what we explain that as, is because problem gamblers see a loss as meaning a win is just around the corner. It's like I've had nine heads after a coin toss in a row, the next one must be a tail, which is absolutely not true but is an example of those irrational beliefs that keep problem gamblers coming back again and again and again. And that's why one of the first things we do in treatment with people who do have gambling problems is we explain the mechanisms of how poker machines actually work, we explain the random reinforcement schedule and we explain that although the win rate or the return to player might be 87% or 90%, that means over the lifetime of the machine, and the lifetime of the machine is not two weeks, it might be 20 years. So every time you sit down, the longer you are to play, the more likely you are to lose over time. So how does the industry or you know your industry especially balance that, the idea of wanting to stay to play and some of those cognitive aspects of it with the idea of problem gambling? There's, it seems there's an inherent sort of contradiction there. And maybe you can argue it's the same for sports betting where there's a there's a percentage takeout and it's very difficult to win, but I would maybe argue that there's a little bit more of a luck factor and it's a little bit different to a machine that's configured to A, keep you to stay gambling and B, has a probably a mathematical uh, edge or it's configured to take out a certain percentage over time. How do you balance that contradiction? It seems like it's a difficult one. It is a difficult one and the reality is in Australia and in many parts of the world that gambling is legal and it's allowed as a recreational activity and it's also a highly regulated activity. So we know exactly what the payout rates are of poker machines because they're all hooked up and centrally monitored. The, the venue can't go in and flick a switch and change it. The, the operator can't make a machine pay out more or less. So they're all, they're all monitored to be ensure that they're fair but that's depends on how you define that that fairness and that randomness of the schedule. So what needs to be done is greater efforts to actually inform consumers because it's not really fair if consumers don't understand how a product works but they expect to be able to, to pay or play it. So I think we need to do a greater effort at actually teaching people about how machines work and what their expected outcomes should be. And that needs to be more than just making that information available, you know, having a brochure in the venue or... Uh, having having something available online if someone decides to go and look it up. We need to do a better effort of actually teaching people about the machines. But even if you don't understand how the machines work, to encourage people to have their own limits, so to decide how much they want to spend, what's affordable to them, and actually have a way to help them stay in control of that, whether it be to set a limit or to limit the access to additional funds that they can access. And there have been some efforts towards that in terms of removing ATMs or limiting how much cash you can actually access within a venue. But there's certainly, it could be argued that further efforts could be taken to help people stick to their limits and work out what is actually affordable for them. I want to touch on one more thing with regards to advertising. I follow a lot of the sports betting companies with advertising. It seems relatively, I guess, you know, there's a lot of comedy involved. There's a lot of, you know, videos and different other things to get people involved with some of these gambling sites. Um, they'll have inducements and free bets and bonuses and things like that as well. And then they'll have every now and then a message that, you know, you should control your gambling and if you need help, you should call this number or go to this website. What's the best way to sort of balance all of that? Because it seems like they're bringing people in, bringing in the free bets, the bonus bets, recreational gamblers, you know, by definition are there for entertainment. 
uh, how do you approach, I guess, in your field, the advertising component? Yeah, advertising is a really interesting issue and social media in particular. So I've done a few studies looking at advertising and in Australia it really is particularly noticeable for online sports betting. We have a situation where that's a legal product but we have a hugely competitive market so you have several operators all competing essentially for the same segment of consumers and that mostly involves men between the ages of 25 and, and 55 uh, who are interested in sports and even better if they're interested in racing. So you might follow a, a bunch of these operators on social media, but let me tell you, if you have had any indication that you like sports on your social media profile, they'll find ways to advertise to you regardless yep. if, you, if you follow them or not. So it's, it's arguably difficult to opt out from the advertising online due to that ability for operators to target particular consumer groups so effectively. And uh, once you do like or interact or display any interest in, in gambling, you'll certainly be um, potentially inundated with messages about that. So the interesting thing about social media is although gambling advertising is quite heavily regulated, and uh, you know I'll say that it is because it's more regulated than most industries, but there's still plenty of room for, for tightening things up, that... Social media seems to fall through the gaps a little bit. So unlike a, an advertisement you might see on a billboard or on TV where you have to have a message about responsible gambling, that doesn't seem to really apply to social media. And that makes sense to an extent because if you've got a, a tweet that's 140 characters, it's hard to make a regulation that some proportion of that has to be used up with a responsible gambling message. You really wouldn't be able to communicate via that tool. So we've had this situation where advertising has now changed. It's moved away, particularly on social media, and we've done a study. We actually did an audit. We looked at 101 different gambling companies on social media in Australia, and we found that a lot of the content wasn't directly about gambling. There certainly was gambling content that companies were saying, here are the odds, or um, don't forget about this particular prize draw if it's a lottery. But they were also about this conversation and changing the engagement with a consumer from just a one-way directional of buy this to here's a funny clip and here's a here's a video here's some information about the sport that you like having this sort of positive relationship and brand approval based on these positive engagement and entertainment sort of content that's building a different relationship with consumers than what we've previously seen but it still does have that direct link into gambling obviously because when we asked people we did a survey of of several thousand Australians about their social media <clears throat> engagement and we actually found that most people had about 40 percent of people had seen social media advertisements for gambling which is quite a large proportion given these weren't all gamblers necessarily but we found that for 13 percent of the adults we surveyed they said their gambling had actually increased as a result of social media and that is problematic because that was the group that's most at risk. They were young males who we know are more likely to engage in risky gambling and they were problem gamblers. So for some people who do have difficulty controlling their gambling, they might see a, a post on Facebook or a tweet and that's a prompt or a cue, a trigger for them to start thinking again about gambling and to engage in more gambling than is affordable. So we do need to start thinking about how do we balance these pre -bet, free bets and promotions and the social media presence? How do we, we balance that promotion of gambling while still protecting the potentially vulnerable consumers? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. And I think the person I mentioned before who might only bet once every six, nine, 12 months, if that person's then turned into a person who's betting every two months and then every month and then every weekend, then it's a little bit of a different scenario. So I want to touch on some new forms of gambling. And I've seen obviously many applications now where you can play free games or social casino games. What are some of the new forms of gambling that you've seen sort of emerge in recent times and some of the risks involved of those. Oh, there's so many new forms of gambling. This is one of my more uh, interesting topics because technology is is transforming every entertainment industry, but gambling has been very much on the cutting edge of how to use these things. So we see everything from augmented reality where you can 
Uh, just like you would use an app to hunt for Pokemon, Pokemon Go, one of the most popular apps, actually set a Guinness World Record for the most downloads in the shortest period of time. At the same time, you saw the emergence of, of hunting for free bets using the same augmented reality. So, what? Uh, yeah, you can uh, so you know, use your camera and go around. It was in it was in the UK, and instead of finding a monster, you'd find a free bet that would then take you to the betting website, and you could use that. Wow. So. You know, gambling companies, you can use an augmented reality. There's another app that you can take into casinos and you use it at the, at the blackjack table and it will actually count the cards for you and give you a suggestion for the optimal strategy or whether to hit or, or stay where you are based on the dealer cards. So these, these new apps and these new ways of technology influencing what have been pretty traditional gambling products, gambling really hasn't changed in the last, you know, 50, even 150 years. If you look at a game of poker, it's pretty similar. But then you look at online poker and you can play 12 tables at once and you've got these massively sped up games. And when you speed up a poker game, which is you know a skill-based game and arguably is, is quite different from other forms of gambling, when you're playing 12 tables at once and every, you have to place a bet every 10 seconds, that starts to look a lot more like a poker machine than an actual poker game. So when we, when we look at the new technology, we have to look at what are the implications of this? Is this just taking an existing product and putting it online or turning it into an app? Or is it fundamentally changing the nature of the game, the risk involved, how consumers engage with it, and who are the new groups of consumers? Because you look at something like a poker machine, well, a poker machine is a great product because it makes a lot of money and the people play it for a long time, but I speak at a lot of industry conferences and one common theme that has been expressed for the last several years is that younger people, millennials, aren't playing poker machines. There's concern that the, the next generation are just not coming into poker machine venues. So now we have the development of the video game gambling machine or, or VGM and a VGM takes aspects of a traditional arcade or video game, something that's been highly popular by the younger audiences that has a skill component and then combines this with that random reinforcement schedule of the slot machine that we know is so habit forming. And then you've got a product that is potentially appealing to a whole new generation of gamblers who wouldn't potentially otherwise be becoming involved in gambling. So you have to start thinking about you know what are the what are the reality and the risks of that if you take a product that already isn't well understood and consumers think that they have a skill and now you're telling them there is actually a skill but it's still based on random chance that's kind of difficult for the consumers to understand. How far behind? I'm guessing the answer is a long way. How far behind is regulation on that stuff for VGM and some of those new emerging technologies that have been applied to betting? Yeah, so I do speak to regulators as well, and there's a lot of head scratching going on. Uh, difference between jurisdictions and it, it is changing over time so about this time last year I was actually speaking at the International uh, Association of Gambling Regulators Conference which was held in Sydney and they showed virtual reality and there was a lot of eyes popping at this concept which is surprising because virtual reality has been around for 30 years probably at least so this shouldn't be something that is new and surprising it hasn't exactly crept up on us but uh, there was very little discussion there about anything like augmented reality, let alone something like blockchain. And VGMs weren't discussed at all at that stage. And the Australian regulators are, are currently considering VGMs because they are in place, obviously, in the US. They're in Atlantic City and Las Vegas and casinos in California and Connecticut. So they have been approved. But the regulators here in Australia are looking at these products and some of them are thinking, surely this has to be problematic. A poker machines are already hands down the most problematic form of gambling and you're now telling me that you're specifically designing them to appeal to millennials who are already at risk young people are the riskiest group of consumers and there's going to be a potential skill element to it so we really have to tease out what is the implication of this and and how to regulate it and the, and the regulators are still paying catch up if you look at something like internet gambling it's still banned in the u.s you know, on paper, despite the huge offshore market and illegal online gambling sites. Off offshore gambling is a huge problem everywhere around the world. And Australia still has internet gambling regulation from 2001. 
you know, Facebook wasn't even created then, that the iPhone was made in 2007. So, you know, it's so out of date and out of touch that there are efforts to update it and they're finally actually going ahead, but regulators are definitely playing a lot of catch up. Yeah, it's a good point, certainly. And I guess I want to touch on esports as well. We've seen sort of skins betting, I guess, blow up for want of a better term here relatively recently in the last sort of 12 months. Obviously, the demographic of esports players is very young and the age limit sort of issue comes to mind. What What does your experience and, I guess, research say is a, a decent approach to try and help uh, protect some of those younger players in the esports world and, and things like skins betting, um, which if people don't know, it's sort of using you know, virtual skins, so things that go on top of guns or knives or decals and things like that. And then there's a sort of a third-party exchange in certain circumstances or a place to gamble using those types of things of value. What are some of the things that can be done, I guess, globally? When you talk about esports, it's sort of online and it's it's rampant all over the world now and it's expanding and sports teams, traditional teams are buying esports teams. What are some of the approaches that need to take place to protect those in the esports realm? Yeah, it's a really interesting topic because it's just one of the many examples of where gaming and gambling, which used to be two completely separate activities, for skins betting it is really problematic because that's completely unregulated. It's occurring in illegal gambling sites that have no age verification and there's nothing to say whether the sites are operating fairly or not. They might be taking consumers, um, you know, those skins have a monetary value. When you look at esports betting, that's increasingly being done by skins, so again through an offshore market and illegal operators. But we're increasingly seeing uh, legislated and regulated bookmakers offer esports as a as a product, recognizing the huge popularity of it and the potential market there. And so we actually included esports betting in the survey that we conducted recently in Australia. We surveyed 1,001 past month online gamblers. And we, this survey was in part trying to understand the offshore gambling market and, and who was doing what, and particularly focusing on those people who do gamble every month, so not just people who place a bet once a year on the Melbourne Cup or the footy finals, but regular gamblers. And we found that 17% of people were betting on esports, which is pretty high given that esports really didn't exist two years ago. So we found that they were younger consumers, but they were also doing a lot of other activities. So they were almost all betting on sports. Uh, they were also betting on, on a large number of things. So what we need to look at with all these new types of gambling that come in is are they attracting a new group of consumers? Are they a gateway? So if you have someone that's not at all interested in gambling, but then they might be interested in esports or they might be interested in video games. So they'll try this new product, whether it be a VGM or, or an esports betting, and that opens their world up and it becomes a sort of a stepping stone into the larger world of gambling. Or is it that there are people who have gambling problems and they see a new product and think, terrific, something else I can bet on, and then you're just adding to their repertoire, but you're adding to their expenditure and their time and exacerbating their problems. So we need to start untangling this, and it's not going to be a simple answer of cause and effect, but to understand the implications and then to set up appropriate prevention tools because what works to prevent poker machine problems is going to be different from online race betting and it's going to be different from esports because they're different groups of consumers and so we need to start coming up with more targeted and customized strategies and we need research to inform those and that's what's really missing and that's why the regulators are scratching their head because they're saying well we don't know uh, so we need to start looking at well what steps can we take so we can understand these groups and start to put in place interventions that is going to be effective. Yeah, there's a lot of unregulated areas when it comes to that, and it's it's something we could talk about for a while. You mentioned blockchain before, uh, and I urge those who have an interest in, in how it might apply to gambling to read your law review paper you re- released uh, pretty recently about this topic and how it could impact the future. So I guess a couple of points. Speaking to regulators, as you seem to have recently, and, and about this technology perhaps, what is the approach from those in the industry that you've heard? Has it been, we don't understand it, therefore we don't like it, and it seems to be a bit of a disruptor and, and we don't want to get involved and maybe we'll regulate it out? Or is it open arms and we want to embrace something that can positively impact the industry even though there are certain downsides? Well, I'd say yes to both. There's certainly a large variety of responses by various regulatory agencies. 
So if you look at the UK, they've actually released a paper that includes discussion of not potentially blockchain per se, but they they have released discussions of how to deal with cryptocurrency. And other jurisdictions have more or less either have no discussion of it or um, limited discussion of it. But there are jurisdictions in Europe that have, uh, for example, legalized gambling and regulate the use of cryptocurrency. But it is really important to understand because because blockchain and Bitcoin, while they do potentially have the cause to disrupt the regulative industry, they also have the ability to improve the regulatory industry. So if we're looking at some of the main problems of online gambling are, you know, the, the ability to track money and understand what's actually happening in terms of crime, when you have something that creates perfect records and ensures that outcomes are fair and not manipulated and allows trust in a, in a sense between consumers and, and users and websites, that's a really positive thing. And if you look at how many different online gambling sites they are that essentially provide the exact same service, there's really no need for that many thousand gambling websites. If the consumer can trust a gambling website because it's based on blockchain technology and thus is is fair in its determination of outcomes and the currencies are all fair and regulated, you can actually see a reduction in gambling websites and a move away from some of those less reputable sites that are more likely to potentially cause harm for consumers, whether that be in, in fraudulent activity or just a lack of consumer protection measures. So if we can continue to legitimise the gambling industry, create stronger protections for consumers for the variety of different needs that they have and that regulators can use for their record keeping and to keep track of things, that surely is going to be a positive contribution to the industry. Absolutely. I completely agree. And then you throw in sort of the smart contracts and, and things like that for those non-live sporting event uh, gambling related activities. It can be a game changer, certainly. And the hope is that it's embraced rather than pushed away. And I, I understand that very few people have the understanding of it that you do and reading your paper was certainly helpful to get a, a deeper understanding of how it might shape the future and like I said if you haven't read it go out and get a copy download it and, and read it it's very interesting and I think the the idea that you know you remove a lot of the transaction costs you remove a lot of the waste um, because it's immutable and the way the technology works is could be a really important aspect for the future so um, well, let's see how that plays out. What are you hearing about it in Australia? Has there been any positive steps or has it been kept at arm's length? Uh, there certainly is discussion about blockchain and Bitcoin in Australia in the various industries. And it's a really exciting area because it's so cross-sectional. It is going to change every industry. At a regulatory level in Australia, to be honest, uh, they're still working out how to make self-exclusion work. So I think that blockchain is a fair way off in the horizon. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Um, I'm cognizant of your time, but I've got a couple more points I want to touch on. The first one is women in gambling. I always hear, whether it's in Vegas or sports betting conferences or whatever it might be, that we can't attract top talent and we can't find products that target women and women aren't making up enough of our sort of revenue base. What would you say to that? Uh, yeah, so I think that gambling has traditionally been pretty targeted in terms of a limited consumer group and that's been historically fine but as society is becoming increasingly diversified and have a lot more entertainment options all of a sudden gambling operators are starting to look around at the consumer groups they could potentially be tapping into and looking at you know esports is a great example of that these are these are individuals who were not even remotely interested in traditional gambling products and they're now being brought into the fold after gambling operators recognize just how how many of the, them there are and how much of an important consumer group that there is. And unfortunately, we're also being able to reach younger and younger gamblers. So you look at something like social casino games that have no age limit on them and you think about why are the companies that run those games, particularly the companies that are owned by gambling operators, why are they allowed to be played by adolescents and young people? It's a it's a really interesting area to look at given the lack of regulation in that gaming world despite the the increasingly blurring lines with gambling. So every time you bring in a new consumer group and you see that with the diversification of slot machines and the new products being created to appeal to broader groups of consumers, things like video gaming machines specifically designed to be appealing to millennials, you have to start questioning 
are we equipped in society to deal with the increase of gambling amongst this cohort? Will they respond to the existing prevention and treatment programs? Are there additional steps that we need to take to protect the various groups of consumers? Okay, interesting. And one last one. Uh, I've thought about this more and more and more as I've read about the sort of research papers on gambling and things like that, but why aren't we teaching gambling in mathematics classes or in you know high schools? And I mean, besides maybe prisoner's dilemma you might find or some reference perhaps to gambler's fallacy and more now so with um, some of the new research about things like recency bias and um, some of the more cognitive biases that, that occur and how they apply to gambling. You might hear some stuff about re- uh, regression to the mean perhaps, but in general, it's very unusual that there's any type of gambling classes in schools, yet it's very common in many parts of the world. Do you think that'll change or should it change? Or is anything being done to try and get more widespread understanding so that some of these things that can be put in place will be understood? It's a really interesting question and there's no clear answer. I mean, historically, as you mentioned, gambling has been included as a way of teaching mathematics, but there's increasingly been movement away from that. And it goes back to really archaic thoughts about harm minimization, back to the idea of don't teach safe sex practices in schools, because if you tell you 10 kids about safe sex, they'll realize they can have sex in the first place. Oh, my goodness, because it never would have occurred to them otherwise, (laughs) unless someone mentions it to them in a really awkward conversation. So the same sort of attitude has been taken in terms of gambling. If If you talk to kids in school about gambling, they'll realize that gambling is something that they can do, and they'll start to engage in gambling. But A, that's completely ridiculous because we're online now. Kids know everything well beyond uh, when they're taught about it in schools. But there's still a really, there's a really sort of archaic approach taken towards the education. But on the flip side, there's how do you go about educating them and what do you tell kids? And we do have uh, an increasingly crowded curriculum and issues within schools. So research actually suggests if you ask parents and teachers what they're concerned about in terms of their adolescence, gambling is almost, it's about second to last on the list. There are so many issues that parents and teachers are concerned with and at the top of the list are things like cyberbullying these days and appropriate use of the internet and social media. You know, drug use doesn't even come up as as a top issue. So the, the idea of well, where do you actually fit this into a curriculum when you've got kids that are increasingly crowded in terms of their, their capacity to include new subjects But even beyond that, teaching people about statistics and odds. So, for example, I mentioned that one of the things we do with problem gamblers is teach people how how gaming machine works. But unless you do that in an appropriate way, just telling people the stats and statistics about gambling has pretty much zero impact. There actually was a research study where um, a group of researchers took university students and taught one of them a class about gambling statistics specifically, and they all did exams and understood the odds. They had another class that they just taught general maths to, and there was zero difference in gambling behavior because, as you say, you know, you can have these ideas and you can have your limits and you can understand in the cool, calm light of day, but you walk into a venue and that completely goes out of your head because you get caught up in the flashing lights and the yeah. thrill and the, yeah. the falling of coins. So just teaching people statistics in school is not going to solve any problems. What we can start doing, though, is start to put some of those psychoeducations into school. So my team here at the, the University of Sydney Gambling Treatment and Research Clinic are actually developing uh, short videos and animations that we can take for, for adolescents in school and for early uh, early adults to actually explain to people how slot machines work and how the chances of winning are determined. Some of these psychoeducation techniques to try and address the irrational beliefs that people might have that lead them to gamble again and again so that young people can still try out gambling because let's face it, it's a bit of a rite of passage and as soon as you turn 18 in Australia or 21 and you can get into those gambling venues, Often it is something people are going to do regardless of whether we tell them to or not. But if they are equipped consumers and if they have the ability to have critical insight and reasoning and to keep in check to understand that these machines are designed to make as much money as possible, and this goes across all types of consumer activities, the same with you know online apps and online games, 
If you teach people critical reasoning and the ability to have judgment and to call into question how products are designed for consumers, you give them the skills to be able to make those decisions that they can then stay in control rather than be manipulated or coerced by any product. Sally, this, this is fun. I had a lot more topics, so hopefully we can, we can do this again sometime. I certainly feel smarter now than I did an hour ago, that's for sure. Uh, before I get to your Twitter handle and, and where people can find your work, I just wanted to ask, what books do you read and what information do you consume when you're not obviously working very hard, just so the listeners can get an understanding of, even in your spare time, what are you, what are you interested in? Uh, so spare time, not as much of it these days. I do have a, a dog, so dog walking at the park is my, my usual activity, but I'm increasingly fascinated by behavioral economics, so that's what I'm reading books at the moment. I'm reading, I've just read The, the Ethics of Persuasion by Cass Sunstein, and I'm, I'm reading about behavioral economics and design products. So I've read Hooked by Design, which is a, a really interesting book about the the development of mobile apps and games specifically and how that how that works to get people in using behavioral economics principles. So now I'm reading I'm reading just almost a textbook about behavioral economics and the design of products because I really think increasingly that's what's shaping policy. And and when I one of the first things I spoke to you about is this idea that, you know, static messages, they just don't really work. And even informing consumers, as I mentioned, you can teach people a whole semester on statistics and that doesn't work either. But you can do really small strategies so you can start to nudge people and if you create messages that are are relevant and customized for individuals and occur at the right point in time, you can actually start to profoundly influence behavior. So at the moment I'm really looking at how can we come up with really simple strategies that aren't necessarily going to disrupt uh, recreational gamblers but can start to have a powerful impact across the whole group of consumers towards a positive behavioral change so that's my current hobby at the moment if you will is is trying to teach myself without doing a whole nother phd uh, an economics discipline fascinating thanks i appreciate you sharing some of those some of those interests of yours so twitter handle what's the is that the best way that people can reach out and i guess get your most recent uh, research papers when they're ready to be released that's right so i'm at, at dr sal gainsbury on on twitter uh, and all my papers are mostly available online. So I, I'm at the University of Sydney. I'm senior lecturer and the deputy director of the Gambling Research and Treatment Clinic. So you can find my site at the University of Sydney. But if you look for my profile, uh, you know, Sally Gainsbury on either academia.edu or researchgate.net, all my papers and publications are freely available to be downloaded. So you can avoid those paywalls that the journals might have. And uh, anyone that's interested in having a chat can can track down my email address on the University of Sydney website and shoot me an email. I'm always happy to have a chat. That's awesome. And I'll put a link to a couple of uh, the papers that I enjoyed the most and also the academia link so that those who are interested can find it relatively easily. Um, Certainly highly recommended from my perspective. Dr. Sally Gainsbury, thank you very much for your time. Like I said, I'm much smarter now than I was before. I really appreciate it and I do certainly hope we can do this again one day. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Jake. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Proprietary Limited. Betfair operates a betting exchange and is licensed in the Northern Territory of Australia. The Betfair exchange isn't a house that sets the odds. It's betting at its purest. One punter's opinion against another's. Play the game within the game and join today. Residents of Australia can join Betfair by visiting betfair.com.au and please support this podcast by using promo code BOBPOD. Gamble responsibly. Listener.